This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, September 21st of 2017, it's episode 118. In this episode, the ends justifying the means, a topic selected by our Patreon listeners, plus board games as lead-in for campaigns, streaming or editing process, mental health resources, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And I'm Jenny. And that sound you heard is the complete lack of a guest. <sighs> yeah, I know. Uh, we, <laughs> we've had a lot of guests lately. recording schedule. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> temporarily, uh, we've got one more guest coming up next episode. That'll be really fun. Actually, it'll be two guests, as it turns out, if everything goes according to plan, although I'm a little behind organizing that. Uh, but that'll be really cool and, and a little bit pulling it back away from the the mental health thing more towards the Christian gaming core concept of the podcast, as it were. So that'll be really fun. Mm -hmm. But we've got a few news and notes to catch up on now that we don't have guests who we need to give space to, as it were. So let's go ahead and run through those real quick. First thing, for those who don't follow us on social media and who didn't happen to see like the one night I did this spur of the moment, I am starting to stream the audio editing process. I'm using Mixer to stream it, but it's just kind of a, a way to let people come hang out and get a little bit of early access to the episode as I do the editing. If you're not following us on Twitter, that's probably the best way to find information about that. But going forward, I'm going to really try and give a little bit of lead time saying, hey, you like in an hour, Grant's going to start this process, things like that. Mm -hmm. Last time it was just a spur of the moment. Hey, let's try this. And it worked out super well. It did. I, I watched and and in general, Mixer is a really good streaming platform to do this on. Yeah. It's, it's just, it just makes sense. And it's not so busy like Twitch is. Like I, I enjoy watching things on Twitch, but Twitch is so busy. It, it really isn't. is. Even with like better Twitch TV installed in Chrome, yeah. it's still really clunky and noisy, whereas Mixer is just very smooth and it's super easy to set up and start with. Mm -hmm. I, I really like that. But yeah, the, the nice thing about this is this has gone from, oh, I've got to make myself edit to I am really looking forward to editing. Can I please start early? <laughs> Which is great. Yeah. Keeps me on track because I can't like go spend 30 minutes on Reddit when I get slightly bored when people are watching. Mm -hmm. That kind of helps a lot, <laughs> a lot more than you'd think. Um, but also talking with people is just enough distraction that I don't get bored during the process because listening to the same snippet of audio five, six, seven times in a row trying to get the cut right, that gets a little tedious after a while. See, I think mm -hmm. I'd just have horrible performance anxiety and I'd never get it done. So Well, it doesn't bother me. I've been wanting to stream stuff for a while anyway. But, you know, with this, it's creative. It's fun. It's just kind of a chance to hang out with people, chat, have some fun times with them. And that sort of chat while I work is just distracting enough that it doesn't pull me away from what I'm doing, but it keeps me engaged and motivated. So it's really cool. And it turns out to be a lot of fun to just talk with people while I'm working on stuff. Glad it's working for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, odds are this will be like a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday thing or something along those lines. I don't have the exact schedule pinned down. So definitely keep an eye on our social media feeds for announcements about it. I will work out a schedule. There's something else I've got in the works that 
I will probably be talking about next episode very briefly. That's going to kind of change the schedule a little bit here. I'm still trying to work out exactly how that's going to happen, but I'll figure the schedule out, let people know, and we'll settle down on something, I'm sure. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention real quick is that Peter and I have finally finished our first act of our D&D game. Yay. Yeah, and all the PCs survived, which was great. I tried, man. <laughs> I tried. Too honest a GM, that's the problem. <laughs> Can't just be like, well, none of you get out and y'all die. <laughs> Rocks fall, everyone dies. Well, to be fair, we had a, a pretty well-coordinated group of people that worked as a unit and didn't panic when things started going badly, so... Yeah, also, you managed to pull in a bunch of NPCs with class levels to go help you deal with a problem. Yeah, that's what I mean. But when one of those things got one-shotted by, what was it, like a pale slime or something like that? It was literally a reskinned black pudding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well... It was it was a white pudding in this case. Well, in any case, whatever it was, when it one-shotted one of the NPCs, which was... Probably our favorite NPC in the campaign, and oh, he no. went down in an unconscious heap. We still managed to keep it together and keep fighting, and we even rescued him. Yeah. Aren't you glad I pulled those guys out while the thing was sinking? <laughs> yeah. I thought about leaving one in, but I was like, you know what? It's getting late. I don't want to just drag this out. And apparently these tough, defensive D&D 5th edition monsters will just straight murder this party. <laughs> <laughs> or at least the NPCs. They'll two-hit you guys. Yeah, 5e does not screw around with monster damage. Mm -hmm. It does not. I've had to seriously pull back on monster damage for you guys. Now, in fairness, you guys don't have maxed out constitution bonuses, and you only have one character class that's tanky. Out of the three of you, the cleric's kind of middling, and then, you know, my wife's playing a rogue. Yeah. Naturally very fragile. And but we've only got three of us, too, which is a little bit of a disadvantage on its own. And that's the thing. There aren't as many people to spread damage around to, but, oh, hey, here's a chimera. Its fire breath can literally one-shot the party. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fifth level characters like, oh, yeah, this is kind of a, a an okay fight for them. You know, especially with all these people. That's cool. I'm sorry. This does 7d8 damage? <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Why not? Yeah. I remember the uh, the giant octopi that we wound up fighting on the beach when we went ashore that one time. Those just about were the end of us, and that was a throwaway encounter. It really was. So yeah, fifth edition, not messing around. Yeah. I mean, as much as I like it, I think maybe it plays a little too rough sometimes, but... See, the funny thing is I've had other people say exactly the opposite, that they have to scale up the monsters because they're not threatening enough. And how hmm. many people are in those parties? Like four or five. I think that's the difference. Yeah. So... Three is rough, especially with only one primary spellcaster, because we have no area of effect attacks at all. You have no crowd control either. Yeah. Anyway. Hey, it's a gaming podcast. Heaven yeah, forbid suppose. we talk about gaming. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. But yeah, what is interesting is next session, just a couple days from now, we're going to try the thing we talked about when we were talking about the Sabbath, where we're going to give the characters a day off. Which they and desperately see what happens. need. 
<laughs> so we'll have something to report back on that. That'll be interesting because all right, no, these characters. Hang on, just just a second here. Like you might have been going there anyways, but these characters have been on for what, like eight weeks continuously, seven days a week, probably putting in like sixteen hour days for some of it. Yeah, some of it. I mean, you guys have had a break here and there, but it's not been downtime. It's been prep for the next thing. Yeah. Well, it's been we're waiting for something to happen or. We have a couple of days before the next thing that we need to start. <laughs> or we're sailing to that other place where we need to be on again. And Yeah. So you've had some of that, but your characters have not not had threats hanging over them. Yeah, the Sword of Damocles has finally been cut down for a while, at least. So <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I'll hang one up eventually, but... Yeah, I mean, it, it took some effort to get this one cut down, so... It did, it did. I almost drowned the entire party, so that was fun. Yeah, okay, you know what? This is this was an interesting set-piece battle, and I, I think maybe instead of just referring to this indirectly, we should just go ahead and talk about it. So, the fight was, as you may remember from previous episodes where we talked about this, against this kind of advanced sea hag in her lair, which was this house built inside of this enormous anglerfish skull. Yeah, I want to say we worked I worked out that this thing was like 40 feet across. It was oh, nonsensically wow. fantastically large because D&D. Yeah. Well, and plus, you know, you needed some space for what, seven or eight people plus two puddings <laughs> and the sea hag to fight in? Yeah. Yeah, I think I actually I shrunk it down a little, but I mean, 40 feet is like eight squares yeah. across. It's not the biggest space in the world. But it's enormous for an anglerfish skull. I mean, if you yeah. if you picture how big that fish would have been while it was alive, that is a terrifying, like, horror from the deep kind of a thing. Yes. Aren't you glad to be sailing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyways, we, we go in there and we're, we're having this fight and we get um, our enemy down to, what, about 25% hit points or so? Exactly 25%. That was the trigger, yes. And she launches this whole fish skull house a couple hundred feet out into the ocean where it starts sinking. Now, this is a sea hag we're fighting, so she's not going to drown. The other thing that it does is it takes the NPC ranger that I was also piloting completely out of the fight because he was actually perched outside a window with his longbow on an immovable rod. <laughs> it's like hanging out in space <laughs> waiting for a shot. Yeah, it, it's a, a kenku, so it's it's a bird sitting on his perch. Yeah. Shooting arrows. Oh, so, that's cute. Yeah. It was, it was pretty cute, and he did a fair bit of damage. But because the party did not bring him inside for the fight, because why would you? He can shoot from forever away yeah. through a window. All of a sudden, he got left on the beach or slightly above the beach. Yeah, I, I like to think that he, uh, when the, the house went flying out into the ocean, he just screamed, hey! <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. I, I like that. I kind of want to think that there was a moment of like, he's just kind of staring where it was and then, what just happened? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then possibly screaming, hey. So yeah. that was an interesting bit to the, the set piece that I didn't, uh, nobody really in the party anticipated and I thought was kind of cool on Grant's part because, hey, it's an aquatic magical enemy. This makes sense. You know, and then like all these curtains that were kind of made out of bones and stuff sealed off and we had to break our way out of those once we'd killed the hag and everything. It was It was a neat set piece battle and it was an unexpected twist, which I thought was cool. It also created tension because the whole point is this place is filling up with water, but it doesn't instantly fill. All of your player characters had ways to survive underwater. And none of the NPCs did. And we right. liked those people. So. <laughs> so there was a case of we need to kill the sea hag because that's what we're here for. 
We need to deal with any other minions she's got. We need to escape her crazy haunted alchemist house because it's a witch's hut. Yeah. With all of our friends alive. Yeah. And oh, by the way, two rows of squares every turn are filling with water. That's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the nice things about doing maps digitally is that I could basically take the skull battle map that I had and skew it so that it was at this weird kind of disconcerting angle, which A, means that there are fewer squares, right? Because the whole thing's at an angle, there's mm -hmm. less space, right? It's awkward space. And B, it looks like it is sinking at this weird, crazy angle. So I thought that was a fairly effective little tactic. I mean, yeah, my own horn the, here the, a little the, bit. The, but two, the two maps that actually weren't two maps was kind of a neat twist as well. That's one of those things where you can't do that with theater of the mind as well. So, you know, you kind of use the, the whole battle map thing to good effect there, which I also thought was a nice touch. Well, and this is a climactic battle. I didn't want it to be theater of the mind. I really wanted to use a battle map for that because that's that's real D&D &D right there. You know, well, you want, you want the visuals, you want the whole that experience. Many combatants, it gets really hard to track all of that, just keeping track of it in your brain. So, yeah, I mean, you had seven people on one side plus the monsters. Yeah, it would have been incredibly tedious. But yeah, that anyway. was that was a cool kind of capstone to act one there. So that was that was nice. I'm glad it did go as well as it did. It was fun. I wanted it to be this big engaging thing and have a little twist to it. So it worked out. <laughs> that was the other thing that was kind of funny is the fighter definitely contributed, but he did not take a single swing at the enemy, which was very a stereotypical, I guess, for how that sort of thing would go. <laughs> yeah, but not for him because he was trying to heave this giant boiling cauldron of this classic witch's cauldron, yeah. right? He was trying to heave that over and spill that alchemical goo onto her. The problem is he rolled like a one and a three yeah. to do it. And it's just like, <laughs> but he I, sure got her attention. So yeah, it's like, I, and so he's, you know, he's hitting this thing. It's rocking on its stand, but it's not doing what he wants. And then he ran over to try and get, you know, his teacher up who got knocked out. And I think the only thing he ended up doing was ripping the curtain open to let everyone out and then acting as an emergency flotation device. Which, to be fair, saved probably three or four of the NPCs we brought with us, so... Probably. He's got armor that magically floats, so he really just did sort of pop up, up onto the surface and inflate, I guess. You know, the, um, the, the scene that actually came to my mind is you've seen The Incredibles, right? Yes. Where the mom turns into the uh, rubber raft and the kid becomes the outboard motor. <laughs> <laughs> See, what comes to mind for me is um, Star Trek Insurrection, where Data is in the water and says, in case of an emergency landing, I am equipped to act as an emergency flotation device. And his <laughs> chest inflates and he starts bobbing. <laughs> <laughs> it was not the best Star Trek movie, but it had its moments. And that was one of them. <laughs> it's a flotation device. It can hang on to you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that was fun. And uh, we'll be talking more about D&D in the future, I'm sure. But we had that climactic moment, and I'm sure we'll have some other gaming stories to come out of this stuff that may well turn into episode topics. So yeah, more, more blog entries. Yeah. yeah. I have a thing to talk about. So as of recording, it is still summer, but tomorrow it will be fall, which will mean that our summer of mental health topics will have finished. And it's it's really cool that we got to talk with some amazing people about how beneficial gaming can be to your mental health and uh, the intersection of mental health with gaming. And that's really cool. But all of those resources that people were talking about that we got them on to talk about, I noticed that they were heavily localized. Like you have to be there to experience that one type of thing. But there's so much more. There are so many 
other resources that you can access uh, if you are going through dire straits. Therapy and other mental health resources aren't just for those with diagnosed mental illnesses. You're allowed to seek help regardless of, of whether you're just going through a rough patch or if you're going through something worse. Uh, we're all stronger when we work together, so don't be afraid to talk about it. I've included some links in the show notes that uh, you may find useful if you are going through a difficult mental health journey. So yeah, hopefully those are helpful. And they're a lot less localized. Like, you can access these if you have an internet connection. And if you are listening to this podcast, you probably have an internet connection. So uh, One would assume, yeah. anyway. I mean, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so uh, that was just a thing that I wanted to throw out there. Because we hadn't really done any formalized here are some resources for you if you need them. So I yeah. figured that I'll make that sure to link out. those in the show notes. Mm -hmm. There are a few others I can add to the list that Jenny's started creating, but we'll need, we'll collate that and put it all into at least the show notes for you. Appreciate that. Thank you. A couple other quick news and notes, and then we should move on here. By the time this episode drops, the Patreon subscriber poll for episode topics should be out for uh, fourth quarter of 2017. This episode, by the way, is brought to you our, uh, by our Patreon supporters, like every episode, and the topic that we're going to be talking about tonight is one selected by our Patreon subscribers and supporters, so we really appreciate all of your support. And if you're a Patreon supporter, there's also a monthly behind-the-mics post that I do on our Patreon page, kind of letting you know what's coming up in the next month, what we're working on behind the scenes, and all that sort of thing. And we really want to thank all of you who support us. It, it helps us a ton. Yeah, mm -hmm. we are 100% listener funded and we are very grateful for that. Yeah, we and are. literally every single dollar counts. Like even if you can, I, I know a few people who are sort of hesitant to back anybody on Patreon if they can't give a lot per month. Like, no, 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 no. If all you can give is a dollar a month, then that's still really cool. And that's most of our backers, I think, isn't it? Yeah, most of our backers are a dollar a month and that's yeah. totally fine. I mean, here's the thing, $2 a month covers our website and our Podbean hosting for the episodes themselves for a month. So donating just a little bit every month supports the whole show. It's really a huge help. We really do appreciate that. I've been trying to cut back a little bit on how much I talk about Patreon on the mics because ultimately we would do this show without Patreon support. Yeah, we did but for years. You are a huge help. And especially when we're doing a, an episode where the topic is selected by our Patreon backers and things like that. I really want to call that out because you guys are the ones who make it possible for us to go to conventions, to mm -hmm. print t-shirts and business cards for new hosts. Like Jenny's got those. I was able to confirm that this week that yeah. all of that stuff was delivered. So when she's going to save against fear, she's got stuff to hand out to people to help talk about the show. Mm-hmm. Also, I can confirm that the t-shirt that the Patreon supporters got for me is so comfy. We, I, So I would <laughs> like to just sort of give a little shout out to the fact that we have uh, we have a store where you can buy merch from us. Yeah. Uh, and technically, like, I think we get a dollar or something like that, maybe a little less per shirt. I've got the prices turned down on shirts as much as I possibly can. <laughs> yeah, as it turns out, Zazzle requires a lot of money just to make this stuff. It yeah, does. it does. That's yeah, the joy of print on demand. But yeah. it's also better than me trying to do a print run of 100 T-shirts and guessing at what sizes people want and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you this. If you want a T-shirt, let me know. If you want me to customize it for you, I'll figure it out. It's not like we have such high demand that I can't spend five minutes on our Zazzle site going, hey, try this. Yeah. We'll figure it out. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those good, fast, cheap kind of things. It's it's good and it's fast. So it's 
unfortunately not going to be as cheap as you'd get from like a department store or something. But yeah, mm-hmm. but that's more of a, hey, I want a Saving the Game shirt, not a buy a shirt and help support us. Like, yeah. It supports us by getting the word out about our show, mm-hmm. not financially. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of that, if you are not a Patreon supporter and you don't have any plans to support us on Patreon, but you want to support the show because you like what we do. Review us on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or Podchaser. Rate us on there. That helps a ton, even though we've been around a while. Every rating and review raises us significantly in those rankings because it shows the system that, hey, this is a podcast that people are listening to and is active and other people might be interested. And frankly, because we're such a niche podcast, (laughs) honestly, if you're going to do one or the other – the whole like rating and review thing probably helps us more in the long term. It does. But most of all, what really helps us is just sharing us around on social media and talking about us with others. That helps us enormously because that does help drive listenership. Podcasts don't grow through advertising. I know there are some that do advertise. There are some that do partnerships, all that sort of thing. Ultimately, podcasts start to grow from people saying, hey, here's a cool thing. I think you would like, or that people who like me might like. That's how podcasts grow. So take a minute if you haven't in a while and just talk about us. Let people know that we exist. Let people know that you listen and that it's pretty cool. And speaking of uh, neat things that our Patreon backers do for us. Yes. Let's get our Patreon questions. These questions have added a lot to the show, I have to say. So let's get to the next one. Let's do that. I, I'm really I love the fact that we have these Patreon questions. All right. Rolling a die. OK, so this is from Doug Hagler, who's a longtime supporter of the show as well. Have you ever thought of using a board game as a lead in to a RPG campaign? For example, yes. play a game of the Game of Thrones board game as the setup for the situation in A Song of Ice and Fire RPG campaign. If you have, what would you do? If you haven't, what might you want to try? Okay, I have a very detailed answer for this one. Although it wasn't me, it was my mother. She used Clue to basically run a game that she runs at a lot of different conventions. I, know I she played ran- that game. You did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that game was great. <laughs> yeah, um, she basically uses the Clue board as a map for a mansion that you are trying to loot the ever-living heck out of. And she calls the the game Loot the Mansion. And yeah, so it's not exactly like the example here, but yeah, we've been using that clue board, specifically that clue board, in our house as a map for a mansion in our D&D campaigns, literally since I was about seven years old. Because I remember the first time was a church sleepover for Y2K for like the new year. And wow. we used we used the clue board as sort of like clue meets D&D. So every room you went into, you had to fight a monster. And that was the very the very beginnings of Loot the Mansion. Well, and the um, other thing that I, I think is great, having played in this at the last year of the con, she even hangs a lampshade on the fact that it's always the same layout by saying that like... I forget. It was it Parker Brothers or Milton Bradley, but whichever the yeah. the board game manufacturer, it was like, oh yeah, they were, these were famous contractors. They were really um, popular with the nobility for like a century <laughs> or something. There's a zillion of these identical mansions all over the kingdom. Yeah, I think I think she called it like Parker and Parker or something yeah. like that. That's pretty great. I have not done this, 
I can't say that I have thought about it a whole lot because I have enough trouble getting games to start in the first place. I don't have time for a board game to do a lead in. And most of my gaming is done online these days, which makes the tactile experience of let's sit down and do a particular other game to set it up. It makes that a little more difficult. The one thing that I might want to do just kind of off the top of my head as a fun intro for a game is play something like gloom to Mm. set up some kind of silly hauntings and stories behind say a inspector's game or some other you know ghost busting kind of game where you have a little bit of urban horror but it's very funny urban horror Mm -hmm. do gloom and set up the story of here are some families and here are the lives people led and the way they died. And these are the ghosts that are going to show up in the game. Hmm. That's like the one thing that comes to mind for me. In fairness, I like board games, but I don't make a habit of collecting very many of them. If I were going to run like a Deadlands game, I guess we could do Doomtown because that's a card game based in Deadlands, but that's such a complicated game. I don't know that that's really a lead in for a specific campaign. Hmm. More than anything, I'd like want to do a one shot of the same system to do like, hey, this is something else happening in this setting. Here's some throwaway NPC characters, all of whom I expect to die during this session. We're going to have this big dramatic, you know, this is what's going on. And then one guy escapes to tell the tale. That character becomes an NPC later on to show up and say, help me, such and such has happened. And the players, having played the prologue, know what's up. See, the <laughs> the way that I've thought of using this before is play a game of Pandemic and take some notes while you're doing that to see how it goes and which um, characters do what and you know who is successful and who isn't. Then use a playthrough of Microscope to define in more detail kind of this disease-ravaged world. Because, Mm -hmm. let's be honest, even if you win Pandemic, the world is not going to be the same as it was before the game started. No. It just won't be. And then, after you have played Pandemic and then Microscope, then sit down and have a role-playing campaign in that setting. Yeah, ultimately, I think what we're saying here is run Microscope and then have good games. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, Microscope is such a fantastic tool. I I think it belongs in every GM's toolbox, honestly. You don't want to use it for every single game, but um, especially if you've got a bunch of people that have GM'd themselves, it's a wonderful way to do interesting world creation where you're going to wind up with stuff that you yourself wouldn't have thought of but still fits perfectly. That's Mm. true. Okay, well, Doug, interesting question. Thank you very much. And again, if you want to send a question in yourself, just support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash saving the game. All right, let's get to our scripture. And then we have a fairly heavy topic to get to. So we need to dig into that. Mm -hmm. So Joshua chapter one, verses seven through nine, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave to you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And second, we have the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 47 to 50. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. 
Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And finally, we have 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. So, as we mentioned before, our topic tonight is selected by our Patreon backers, and the topic we're talking about is, well, it's kind of a phrase that I think everybody in the English-speaking world knows. The ends justify the means. What do we mean when we say the ends justify the means, Peter? What, what are we talking about? What's that mean? Uh, we're talking about the idea that as long as you've got a good goal in mind, it's all right to do horrible things in service of that goal. That's pretty much it. There is a formal name for this sort of philosophy. It's called consequentialism. This is a really broad category of philosophies. Like if philosophy is if we're going to transmute this into the animal kingdom here, right? We've got kingdoms. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the idea mm -hmm. of philosophy. We're in the phylum level here. Okay. <laughs> Very broad categories of philosophy. Yeah. This this would be the group that has both dogs and bears in it, just to give yeah. you an idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is Bentham's utilitarianism. This is Mohist or state consequentialism. This is ethical egoism. This is all sorts of things. All these different forms of consequentialism are differentiated based on the definition of moral goods, the ends that are desired, as well as the question of consequences for whom and who decides what's good or bad. Classically, these are positioned in opposition to deontological ethics, which derive the moral value of actions based on the behavior itself rather than the outcome, and against virtue ethics, which focus purely on the morality of the actor, largely to the exclusion of what they did and what actually happened. Mm -hmm. Note that when we talk about this, we're not saying that taking the consequences of our actions into account when deciding on a course of action is unimportant. Taking consequences into account does not make you a pure consequentialist. Christians are naturally asked to consider the consequences of their actions. In, in fact, sanity means that you are going to question the consequences of your actions. <laughs> yeah, largely. Having said that, traditionally speaking, Christian ethics is opposed to consequentialism in almost all of its forms. Uh, and there are a couple of problems with this idea. I think, you know, when we say, hey, the ends justify the means, every Christian naturally says, eh, not always. Yeah. Probably not. Eh, mm -hmm. Hold on. But thinking about it requires a little bit of explicit investigation of this idea. The first problem with consequentialism is that it depends entirely on the reference frame. Either you are limiting your reference frame so that the idea is the consequences of my actions are good based on my perspective or the perspective of someone else or worst case, some ideal omniscient observer. In most consequentialist philosophies, this requires some sort of complete and perfect knowledge. If I take an action to accomplish some good, you know, stealing to feed my family, for example, I'm doing something bad, according to Christian thought and deontological thought. 
but the goal is feeding my family. I have to understand all the consequences of my actions, that butterfly effect, everything that spreads out, you know, how severe was the theft? What follow on effects happened from that? Did feeding my family accomplish a good, so on and so forth. Did I feed them healthy food? What did I buy with the money, right? There are all these things that I have to consider, which you have to think through to determine the consequences. And that requires perfect knowledge, or I have to ignore all of that and say, I think feeding my family is good. Therefore, the action I took is good, regardless of what an outside observer would think. Maybe more importantly, consequentialism is a self-referential philosophy. It inherently assumes what it's attempting to define. Are these consequences good necessarily requires a definition of good, which consequentialism says must be determined by consequentialism. So you have this loop that you can never really escape trying to figure out, is this good? It, is, it slips in with this assumption of what is good or bad from the outset and then says, oh, we're going to use this philosophy to determine what's good or bad. Maybe as a more explicit example of why this idea of the ends justifying the means and consequentialism is problematic, let's look at the most important event in scripture, right? Consider the crucifixion. A pure consequentialist would argue that the crucifixion was inherently good. It resulted in the salvation of man, and that outweighs the evil of the act of crucifying Christ. The Christian understanding of the crucifixion, however, is that the act of crucifying Christ was evil. This is something that evil men did. God died painfully on the cross, killed by jealous, selfish, power-hungry men. That act was permitted by God, but that does not make Christ's death in and of itself good. The fact that God then redeemed that is a victory over this evil act, not something that turned this evil act into something morally good. Does that make sense? Yeah, the fact that mm -hmm. something can be redeemed later doesn't mean that it was great all along. Exactly. If I gain, you know, some friendships while I'm in the hospital from having broken my arm, that doesn't mean it was a good thing to break my arm. It means that the best was made of that situation, and now I have something to show for it later. Mm -hmm. Right. Or worse, I shot you, Peter, and in the hospital, you made good friends with the guy in the room next to you. Did that then make me shooting you a good thing? No, no of, of course, course not. not. <laughs> yeah. Christian ethics, like we said before, is deontological. We are concerned with the spiritual well-being of actors. Motivation matters. Decisions and actions have value beyond their outcomes. And more to the point, Christian ethics is focused on moral duty, the pursuit of God and his commands to us. And we faithfully pursue those commands, trusting that the commands are necessarily good because God is good. I think most Christians inherently understand this in regard to explicitly Christian beliefs and doctrine and very obvious examples like, hey, Peter, if I hit you really hard and send you to the hospital or if I do violence to you and then something good comes out of that, did that make it OK? No, of course not. Right. It's a very obvious example. Whether we are able to recognize it in the wild and properly address it or whether we are willing <laughs> to address it in the wild when we see it in ourselves or in others, that is a different matter. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's inconvenient. Sometimes we think, well, the ends justify the means because the ends are good for me. It's unfortunate, but that's mm -hmm. human nature. And part of our job as Christians is to overcome that and say, yes, it helped me, 
but that doesn't make it okay. This is also, by the way, one reason we pray. Because we are asking God to guide us so we can do his work in the world, we are following his orders. And that's a very deontological concept, that our morality is derived from our moral duty to follow God's commands, which are inherently good. So when we pray, we're asking for guidance to determine what is right or wrong. What actions should we take? One one thing that I should interject here. If, yeah. if at this point in the conversation, this is seeming like a little much. And it is, even for me. Yeah. This is why grace is important. <laughs> because even just talking about this stuff on a theoretical level gets pretty challenging. Would you not agree? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. To a certain degree, I didn't want to do this episode because I am not the right person for Trying this. Trying to go through this calculus in one's own life in real time. It's no wonder we get it wrong so often. Yeah. By the way, this is maybe a good chance to plug somebody. There's a podcast called The Sci-Fi Christian. Peter, you might remember we did a little bit of work with them way back when, when the crossover nexus was a thing. Yep. They're a very good podcast. And this is the kind of philosophy that they tend to talk about a fair bit. I don't know if they've necessarily talked about consequentialism as such or utilitarianism as such, but this sort of thing is what they talk about often in connection to art and Christian storytelling and particular kinds of stories. If you're interested in a slightly more philosophical conversation about sci-fi and storytelling and Christianity, it's a good podcast, and I recommend it. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Also, really cool guys, and I don't know why we haven't had them on the show yet. It's just, that's our fault, really. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so having said all that, I think we all understand that the ends justify the means is inherently an unchristian idea. What do we do with that, both as Christians in the world and as storytellers? telling collaborative stories. Wait as your co-hosts think over the meaty theological and philosophical question that you have placed to us. <laughs> it's a bit of a rhetorical question. I apologize. I can jump in here to start us off. All right. Because there's a big set. And I think as soon as I say this, you'll all understand exactly what I'm talking about. There's a large set of visionary villain archetypes in our stories. This is the villain who wants to improve the world, maybe, at least as far as they see it, and will improve the world at any cost. Okay, so there's a certain subset of dark characters that are portrayed as heroic that are kind of like that, too. Yes. Do we have time for my anti-Punisher rant, or...? Yes. Go, okay. We always go. have time for rants. Go. <laughs> do it, do it, do it, do it. So this is, this is why, as I have gotten older and i like to think at least grown in my faith why i have come to really dislike the character of the punisher in the marvel universe you've got somebody who is willing to depending on who's writing him at the very least murder and sometimes kidnap torture do all kinds of other awful things in the name of cleaning up the streets air quotes or Maybe just because he's angry and wants revenge. Okay, fine, that's a valid character. That's not a hero. That is not even the slightest bit heroic. That's not even an anti-hero. That is a straight villain with his own title. Yes, Mm -hmm. I tend to agree. Yeah. And rant. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of room in here to talk about anti-heroes, because many anti-heroes are characters which, from any other perspective, would be villains with some sort of altruistic goal. Right. They want to do good, but they will do anything to do that good. They lack the moral drive that makes a proper hero. 
This, by the way, is not the same thing as a flawed hero. No, of course not. Boromir is still a hero, even though he had a moment of weakness. Anyways, continuing on. Well, yes, but the the moment of weakness that he had was this idea that I will do anything to save my people. Yep. And The difference between him and somebody like the Punisher is he realized he was wrong, paid a horrible price for that, and died doing the right thing. So... And that was a heroic flaw in the character rather than something that replaces a heroic trait and is held up as an anti-heroic alternative. Yeah. Yeah. It it was not his philosophy all of the time to do anything at any cost to save his people. It was the corruption of the ring that corrupted him to to that particular outlook. It was not a decision that he came to over a lot of thinking like the Punisher. Yeah. Yeah. It was a moment of weakness, really. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like I said, a flaw. And that's a a good case of a character who momentarily becomes an antagonist who has something greater that he is trying to save. There's other ones that are very personal, and Boromir kind of blurs that line a little bit. One of my favorite cases of a sympathetic villain who you understand where they're coming from, but they are still definitely a villain is uh, from Wakfu, the the first season of Wakfu. Wakfu is this very strange French anime. It's actually pretty good uh, as far as these things go. Very D&D-ish to the point where it actually feels a little MMO-ish to the point where it's like, what's this? Oh, this is the gate that gets us to other nations. (laughs) All right. Well, it. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> Fast travel. You're 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 just gonna hang that large of a lampshade on it, okay? Yeah. Cause, okay. Cause sure. That, that Why lamp, not? It's very large lampshade. Yeah. All right. <laughs> but this is a, a very cool villain. This is a villain who has done enormous, dreadful things to himself, to his body, built ridiculous nonsense, and is devouring entire nations and sucking up all of their energy, and will happily do that to every living thing in the entire world. Because he's using that energy to try to go back in time, save his wife and children, and never become a villain in the first place so that none of it ever happened. Hmm. Temporal paradox. Yeah, paradox time. Yes. So it's a temporal paradox as a villain because his philosophy is, I am doing all of these things because if I succeed, my wife and children will be alive and none of my evil will have ever happened. And if I fail... Well, then the whole world can burn because I can't stand to live in it without my wife and children. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating villain. Also really well animated. Like the whole thing is super cool. It was at least temporarily on Netflix. I don't know if it is anymore. It's on Canadian Netflix, at least. I've been thinking of watching it for a long time. Uh, You should. It's pretty good. Also, it's got like a three or four episode thing, like straight in the middle of the first season. That is fantasy soccer. It's pretty great. Okay, then. Um, Yeah. The other alternative is that this might be some grand social vision. And TV Tropes, naturally, is a great source for all of these sorts of things. Standard disclaimer about TV Tropes. If you look something up, it's not our fault if you get trapped all day. Mm -hmm. Yep. And they describe this as the utopia justifies the means trope. And I think everybody knows this. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was Demolition Man. I am a terrible person, but I am doing terrible things to protect my weird utopia that I've created out of. What was it? San Francisco, Los Angeles? I don't even remember. Yeah. It also gets brought up a lot in a movie that I only watched just recently, and I don't know why I hadn't watched it before, uh, Snowpiercer. Oh, and yeah. one thing I really liked about Snowpiercer was it landed firmly on the side of, no, the ends do not justify the means. Mm, no, they good. do not. No, they don't. Get your head out your butt. They don't do it. <laughs> yeah. 
There's another one, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later, but there is the bad guy who's trying to preserve a status quo that's imperfect, but good enough. Uh, we'll talk about that here in a second. Someone's got an example from Madoka Magica. Yeah, it's I've me. got one from Final Fantasy, so we'll yeah. talk about that in a second. Now, storytellers can shade all of these motivations in all sorts of ways. Uh, you can have antagonists who are more or less aware of their own evil, working toward end goals which are more or less good or more or less practical or more or less purely altruistic. And of course, you can have villains who are in different positions in society, somebody trying to cause a public uprising and install themselves as dictator coming from poverty and nothing feels different morally than somebody coming from the upper class. The motivations are different. The end result is perhaps different, etc. There are all sorts of ways that you could shade this and make this more or less appropriate to your story that you're trying to tell, play off your your characters and your players a bit, whatever you want to do. I want to come back to this bad situation that people feel stuck in, because this is a good example of how to do this without having a villain per se. This is a problem that has to be addressed, but one that the characters are well suited for without having a direct antagonist, quote unquote, making it happen. This is a case where you've got an imperfect status quo. People know it's imperfect, but most people accept it because they don't think it can be changed, think this is the best possible or only solution, or just don't have the power to change it. And then you have protagonists who show up to change it, typically for the better, typically in some radical manner. Occasionally, they ruin the whole thing and everything falls apart because tragedy. Jenny, go ahead with yours. All right. In in the case of Madoka Magica, the ends that are being justified by the means is basically the the whole universe staying the universe. If for anyone who doesn't know Madoka Magica, uh, it's basically a deconstruction of the magical girl anime setting. Um, yes. With lots of weirdness and subsequent series are basically, we should just be sad and mopey and depressing and weird mm -hmm. instead of interesting and weird. Yeah, uh, this was interesting and weird, but heavy. So like I, I wouldn't, I did not go into the show knowing that it would be as heavy as it was because I just went in knowing all of the memes from the internet. Um, <laughs> so yeah, just, you know, enter with caution. Yeah, one of the characters in there is called Cubay, and it's basically like a cat rabbit from outer space whose entire race is holding the universe in balance by basically sacrificing tween or teenage girls, like middle school girls, in order to keep complete entropy at bay. And when confronted with the idea that maybe Cubay's race is wrong, Cubay's like, oh, no, 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 we're like completely right there's no alternative. We absolutely have to sacrifice the emotions and positive energy exuded by, you know, 12-year-old kids. This sounds um, like the plot the, of Cabin in the Woods turned into an anime. You know what? Yes. A little bit. <laughs> I, it's, believe, it's got some of the same vibes. I think Cabin in the Woods... No, Cabin in the Woods did just barely precede it. But yeah, it, it's basically like... This is a thing that's been going on for millennia. It's working for us great. Sorry that, you know, you're basically being corrupted from the inside out. But, you know, look at all the other people who are doing just fine because you're being corrupted in from the inside out. You know, great. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. First off, it's a pretty good anime. Mm -hmm. But again, very heavy. Yeah. Be aware of that. My example is one that many of our listeners may already be familiar with. This is Final Fantasy X. And 
All right, look, we've already kind of spoiled Madoka Magica a little bit. I'm going to mm-hmm. give you a spoiler warning for Final Fantasy X, but also this came out in 2001. Yeah, and I'm going to spoil Cabin in the Woods later, so... <laughs> yeah, we we are past the spoil by date. If you haven't played it yet, though, it is available on PC in HD, so, you know, enjoy that. And really, you should play it. It's really good. I am going to try and keep spoilers to a minimum outside this one point central to the story. Here's the basic story conceit for Final Fantasy X. The world of Spira is ravaged by a massive, invincible monster uh, called Sin, which wrecks whole towns and cities and spawns monsters of its own. The status quo here is a system by which the religious authorities encourage people to learn a particular type of magic and go on a pilgrimage to get more and more power and authority. And these magicians culminate their pilgrimage in learning the final form of this particular magic, which is used against this massive monster. This always kills the caster, and it only temporarily defeats the monster. But the monster needs a few years up to a decade two decades, maybe three. I think they mentioned at some point there was a calm that lasted a hundred years. It needs that time to regenerate. And that buys the rest of Spira time to recover and to be free of the fear that this monster brings. It's called bringing the calm in the story. And the thing is, nobody in this system likes seeing these spellcasters destroy themselves. But the self-sacrifice is viewed as vital to the survival of Spira and as an altruistic act because these spellcasters know what they're doing when they start this journey. They know it's going to culminate in their death, but they're all hoping that they will be the one to buy the rest of the world years, maybe decades of peace and freedom from fear. As a result, these people who are on this pilgrimage are always treated with honor, approaching reverence by the public. And those who successfully complete their pilgrimage and destroy this monster temporarily are remembered in legend and religious history. There are statues built to honor them and hometown temples especially. They are heroes. The protagonists of the story, which includes the main viewpoint character, of course, who is an outsider to the whole system, sets themselves the goal eventually of permanently defeating this monster, breaking the cycle. But of course, this runs the risk of ruining the whole process that keeps this balance and making it so that there is never a calm again. As a result, you have a variety of antagonists. You have the monster itself. You have the religious authorities and their followers who fear that failure state. And of course, some few other side stories with their own protagonists, antagonists, and the usual JRPG mystic nihilistic nutjob who wants the monster to win. There's always the one. I want to emphasize here that this is a story And this is, I think, a very important thing for anybody running a game like this. The story emphasizes both hope and fear. It would be awesome if the status quo were improved, if nobody had to fight this monster again. But interfering and failing might leave the status quo worse than it is. And there are plenty of people, and I think we all are familiar with this trope, plenty of very practical, risk-averse people who want to avoid that failure state at all costs, even if it runs the risk of not improving the status quo. That's a fantastic antagonist because they are motivated by genuine care, but will oppose the protagonists because the protagonists are trying to do protagonist things. Mm -hmm. There's actually um, a pretty decent example of that type of mindset in uh, Princess Mononoke. uh, Yes. I, I cannot for the life of me remember 
her name, but the the antagonist, I wouldn't call her evil because she is actively trying to provide for marginalized groups of people in Mm -hmm. her area. She has given them livelihoods. So the fact that the protagonists of the story are are trying to tear all that down is deeply upsetting to her. Mm -hmm. Even though they want to change it for the better, it is a change that she is unwilling to risk. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that she can't foresee the positive consequences of. Yeah. In many and cases. by the end, she she does say, OK, we'll try again. We we will yeah. try a different way. Right. Which is one reason that movie is so good. It is a redemptive victory. Yes. Yes. So I did want to touch on Cabin in the Woods a little bit about this, because it's an interesting, <laughs> tragic example of a story where the ultimate message is, even if this horrible stuff you're doing does ultimately preserve an okay status quo, that's still not good enough. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Cabin in the Woods is five years old at this point, so it's a little closer to the, I suppose, spoiler danger zone, but you've been warned and I've mentioned it several times, so off I go here. What we're saying is pause this episode, go play Final Fantasy X, go watch Madoka Magica, and go watch Cabin in the Woods. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, And then come back right where you left off. It'll be fine. Cabin in the Woods is a horror film. There's no two ways about it. It is also a comedy, though. A, a, a very good comedy. In some ways, yeah. Although in a, a lot fairly of ways, I'd say, bleak but... one, I would say. Yeah. But... <laughs> dark comedy. Dark comedy. And also a sci-fi movie and a suspense thriller and some other things. But the basic premise is that there is a secretive facility, somewhat like Black Mesa in the Half-Life games, <laughs> where... This very large organization manipulates otherwise innocent people into becoming the victims of slasher monsters to keep even worse monsters from waking up and destroying the world. So all of these people who really, and they call this out at a number of points in the movie, as this group of, this latest group of victims really are getting picked off by this monster, really don't deserve this and don't even fit the archetypes they're kind of being forced into all that well. But it's like, well, we kind of have to do this or these titans basically will wake up and wreck the world. Uh, as the movie goes on, two of the, the people who were supposed to be victims of this survive, tear this thing down, and the end result is the Titans do break out and wreck the world, or at least that's strongly implied. You see this multi-story hand like breaking out of the ground towards the end, and it's like, oh yeah, that's going to be bad. (laughs) Here's the thing. At the end, they've revealed all of the horror and cruelty and violence and manipulation and stuff that's been necessary to kind of maintain this, and as the viewer, you're kind of meant to look at it and be like, Yeah, if that's the price for keeping these rampaging things at bay, it probably isn't worth it. (laughs) Yeah. So here's a question for you. What do we do when the players or the players characters, what happens when they start justifying their means by the end goal of beating the bad guy or completing the campaign or something like that? Well, if I'm one of the Mm. players in question, I get really, really angsty about even going after a sea hag. Yes, I know. (laughs) Oh, it's a D&D villain doing terrible things, trying to starve a village. I guess we should, I don't know, capture her and put her on trial. <laughs> but no, it's its a valid point. The situation I set up in our D&D game was, hey, why don't you go kill this thing? And the reaction of this group, which I appreciate, was, is that a step we want to take? Now, my wife very pointedly noted when you brought this up, didn't we 
just spend the last two sessions killing a bunch of other sentient creatures for less cause. Yeah, except for that wasn't okay. So here, here was kind of my thinking on that. Since we have gone there, that was one of those things where our job in that case was not to specifically go and kill somebody or kill a group. Our group in that was to free a bunch of people who had been enslaved and robbed of themselves by going in and rescuing them. And we knew there was going to be some fighting involved there. But we didn't systematically go through and wipe the grungs out. We did kill a few of them in the process, and I believe we even took a few of them down from ambush as cover for trying to get them out. So, yeah, I mean, that was something that I kind of was thinking about and feeling like uh, maybe that wasn't the greatest thing to do either, but I don't know how else we would have done it. And this is kind of one of those cases where this does start to get sticky, especially in very combat heavy games like D&D where violence is kind of an assumed part of the setting. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, as much as a lot of the time when, you know, people throughout history have felt it was necessary, they have tried to make it otherwise. Christianity really is kind of a nonviolent faith. And it's not real easy to, to think, oh, I'm I'm doing right as I mow these people down, no matter how bad they are. So, yes, there there was my angst. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Because the line between Peter and Lambert is paper thin. Yes, that's true. <laughs> So I think my approach to this, and uh, yeah, it's going to depend situation to situation, but and I'm, I'm going to assume that we're talking about characters here, okay? Mm -hmm. What happens when your players start working out violent fantasies or something like that is kind of a, a separate conversation. Yeah. But when characters kind of get sucked into this, well, we're going to just keep doing worse and worse things. First of all, I think you've got an interesting story happening because now you have an internal conflict. So don't shy away from that necessarily. Barring people at the table actively getting uncomfortable and everybody having to just sort of stop, rewind, and retcon. But if everybody's willing to continue with that, I think you have a very interesting story because you have an internal conflict happening at the same time as your external conflict. How far am I willing to go and what do I do when I go too far? And can I then make amends in some way? <laughs> What do I think of myself once I get a chance to stop and think about this is another right. good one of those questions. I mm -hmm. mean, this this is the explicit goal of a game like Unknown Armies. Yep. How far are you willing to go to change the world? The whole central conceit of Unknown Armies is do the ends justify all of these terrible means, which is an interesting game and an interesting question in and of itself. And there's a reason it is a psychological game. If you can turn that into a central story point and a character development point rather than something you're just letting happen, I think, A, you acknowledge it and forefront it for the players. So they look at this and go, I need to be aware of this rather than just let it happen. And B, I think you get good story out of it and can address moral issues at the table openly rather than just ignoring them, hoping they go away or subtly trying to pull against your players or anything like that. If you forefront it and say, let's make this a thing we talk about, then everybody's involved and everybody's engaged and everybody's looking at it with consideration. Mm -hmm. I will say that part of the beginning part of that conversation should be, this is going someplace kind of dark. Is everybody okay with that? And is everybody going to be able to say that they're not if it continues down this road? If the answer to either one of those questions is no, then it's like, all right, then we need to back this up and not go here. Yeah. And that's a conversation you should have before the game, but it's also okay to have that conversation again when you recognize that this is happening and ask your players, do we want to pursue this? And to be fair, 
this can come up suddenly. I mean, I didn't yeah, that's ever why I, for I the say life that. of me think I would ever feel morally conflicted about hunting down a D&D villain. If you had asked five years ago or two years ago me about that, I would have been like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and I'll say this. I did not try to make you morally conflicted about it. In fact, quite the opposite. Yeah. In fact, you, you gave me so much like fuel that I, you know, it was like... I remember when we brought it up and you finally kind of responded because this happened, you know, I started feeling angsty about this before our long break, yeah. which is often when I start feeling angsty about things is when I have too much time to think about them. <laughs> <laughs> you were kind of like, are you kidding me? This, this villain is a walking atrocity. Why would you not want to just put them down? You know? I don't think those were the exact words you used, but that was the underlying message. Well, I was not trying to make a sympathetic villain where it's like, well, should we, shouldn't we? This yeah, was and she wasn't sympathetic in the slightest. No. The, the the relative sympathy of the villain did not factor in at all. Right. Yeah. You know? This was just kind of you getting in your own head a little bit, which yeah. is fine. Again, this comes up naturally. Yeah, especially with me. <laughs> Well, at a lot of tables. Hey, my players are doing terrible things is not a new gaming question. No, no. certainly not. The fact that we have the term murder hobo is yeah. all the indication that you need that this is not a new question. Yeah. Tell me about it. I think I kind of want to wrap this discussion up here. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we have done it enough justice, but I would like to hear how our listeners have handled this. I'd like to share that with other listeners. So comment on the blog post, tweet at us, comment on our Facebook page, etc. Go ahead and join the discussion. One thing I haven't mentioned lately, we have a Discord server. I'll link that in the show notes as well. And there is some conversation that happens there. If you want to jump into a chat and chat about things there, that's a, a fun place for it. Mm -hmm. My goal long term is for that to replace our our Google Plus community, because frankly, there's not many people on Google Plus, and there are a lot more people on Discord, and yeah, I'd rather Google keep Plus the Discord. Has gotten rather anemic lately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I'd like to kind of retire that and move everything over to Discord, which is fine. Chat is fun. Anyway, if you want to join the conversation there, or again on social media, or in the comments of our blog post, great place for it. We'd love to hear your stories about this and how you've addressed the problem and any problems you have ongoing that other community members might be able to help you with. At any rate, from all of us here at Saving the Game, I think we're going to wrap this up here. Have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See you later, folks. See ya. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.